Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from our brand new studios, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour is another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. It has been a very, very uh, interesting week, I think is the best way to put it. So my boss at the radio show, at the radio station that I work at, goes on the air and says something to the effect of curling is not really a sport and anybody could win at curling just by essentially having a pulse and showing up. This proceeded to elicit numerous calls from various people explaining to him in great detail on how wrong he is and how much skill, athletic ability, hand and eye coordination, practice, determination it takes to become a good curler. No, why are you talking about curling? I promise that there's a tie-in. I promise. Where what that eventually led to is the formation of a curling team called Team Electric Slide. Now, Team Electric Slide was composed of the program director at the radio station, and then myself, Brad Schmidt, and uh, Dean Merkel, and 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 the and the the high school volleyball coach, I think, maybe college volleyball coach. Point is, none of us were curlers. Okay, and we all ended up on the ice curling. So if you, I, I can't believe I said that I'm not an athletic person. And then we won. We beat a former world champion. Team Electric Slide has won. We have gained a follower on Twitter. You can follow Team Electric Slide on Twitter. And I've retweeted all of the pictures from that uh, blunderous event that we won. But uh, I just wanted to let you all know that I am now a professional curler, have beaten a world champion, and have every every uh, intention of competing in the Olympics in 2020 in Beijing. So if you live in Beijing, I'll see you there. We can talk about some Linux. one 855 450 That's 855-450-6624. The email live at show.com. We go to our interactive mumble room where Pi Crash, that's an interesting username, Pi Crash joins us. Hey, Pi, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Uh, I always say that it's PyCrash, Py because I love Python, and Crash because I'm such a good coder. Yeah, well, you know what? For what it's worth, if I were to write Python, it would crash. So, um, I, I have a question for uh, about podcasting. I want to start a podcast with a remote host, uh, another remote co-host. Uh, so, uh, I wanted to uh, that he record himself in his computer without a CD, but uh, and maybe I record also the audio in Skype, so I don't have a single point of failure. But Skype sounds terrible. What do you would you suggest? It's a couple different options, uh, a couple different ways you can go. Uh, I assume there isn't a large budget attached to this project. And uh, no, it's just two students having some fun. Here's the easiest way to get on the air, get up and running. It won't cost you a dime, and you'll have absolutely stellar, professional-sounding uh, 
uh, results. The answer is to do something called a double-ender or double-ended recording. And essentially, a double-ended recording works something like this. You record only your voice on your end, and he records only his voice on his end. Then one of you will send your recording to the other person. And in a free program like Audacity, you can combine both of those tracks. And what you'll wind up with is a perfect audio recording of both of you. And because you both started the recording at the same time and ended the recording at roughly the same time, you can align the very, all you have to do is align the first question, the first dialogue. Hey, so-and-so, welcome to the blah, blah, blah show. And then so-and-so says, hey, it's good to be with you. You, you know, you line those up so those sound natural and the rest of the entire show will more or less line up inside of Audacity. How your next question, I'm sure, is going to be, well, how do I get just my voice? How does he get just his voice? There's a couple ways to do that. The easiest way to do that is on the exact same machine that you are using Skype to communicate with your co-host. You just open Audacity on that machine and run it there. Now, the reason that works is because... When you just have an audio interface or just have feeding audio to that computer and you're only and you're sending audio from that computer back, the computer is automatically going to generate what we in the industry call a mix minus. And a mix minus is all of the show assets minus the channel that we are sending from. So in this case, it would be the computer. In your case, you don't have any other show assets. And so the mix minus will be generated for you. So if you simply run Skype and Audacity on the same machine, you're going to accomplish what I'm talking about. And he would do the same. He would run Skype and Audacity on his machine. Now, there actually is, uh, there is another, there are a couple other ways to do that. There are some services that will actually allow you um, to do this double-ended recording right through a, a web browser. And uh, so the first I'm going to recommend is a, a, a piece of software called Source Connect. Now, Source Connect is specifically designed for broadcast. And so what it's going to allow you to do is deliver high audio quality from one browser to another. You don't have to install any software. You don't have to pay any license fees. You just go, just launch Source, uh, Source Connect now, I think is actually the branding of it because there was the legacy version of Source Connect, which was an actual application. Now there's the new version, which is just a web browser. You launch Source Connect now, and you you create a free account and you both sign into it and you will you will be blown away with the audio quality that they're able to achieve. And the reason they're able to achieve that pie crash is because the broadcast industry has really embraced Opus Audio and they've really embraced WebRTC. And WebRTC, if you're not from if, if anybody's listening is not familiar with that technology, what WebRTC is is it's essentially an audio and video encoder and decoder built into the web browser. So for years and years and years in the broadcast industry, we worked on ways to encode and decode audio, and we had very special pieces of equipment to do that. The entire industry is shifting to utilizing these very powerful, very accessible, high-quality, low-latency audio encoders and decoders that are built into all of these websites, uh, like Source Connect. Another one is IPDTL. IPDTL, primarily, that co that one costs money, and the selling advantage is that it can tie into some legacy broadcast hardware equipment. Does that kind of begin to answer your question? Yes, uh, I'm using Arduino in my machine, so it's I can do good routing, but the other host is just using Windows, so it will be Audacity for him, probably. Yeah, and so the that's okay. 
uh, it, you can both record in separate software. In fact, I work with a plenty of people that they use Adobe Audition, and, and I've done double-ended recordings where they record their end in Adobe Audition, and I record mine in Audacity. It can be, it can be different. I'll give you one more option. The other option is a site called Zencaster, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R, and I'll have a link for you in the show notes. The advantage of Zencaster is it does actually not one, but two different things. The first thing it does is it, much like Source Connect or much like IPDTL, uses the built-in WebRTC Opus codec, high-quality, high wideband codec, low latency, to connect you with your remote guest. Here's where Zencast does something really cool. Behind the scenes, Zencaster actually has the ability to record an MP3 or an uncompressed WAV file on the back end automatically. And so you can set it up and link it to your Dropbox account or just have it email you when it's done. And uh, you sign up for a Zencaster account free. And your participant will join using his USB microphone. And it will only record his end and it will only record your end and, and send you those files. The nice thing about doing it through Zencaster PyCrash is that the sync is going to automatically be done for you because it's going to start and stop those recordings at exactly the same time. Okay, that's really helpful, actually. So I'll have a link to both of those in the show notes. You can check those out at podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you're not checking out the extra credit section, then you're only getting half the show because in the extra credit section, that's where we put all of the articles and material that we reference in the show as well as some of the stuff that we just frankly didn't have enough time to get to. But that is a great question uh, Pie Crash, it is a better time than ever to be launching podcasts. Every time I turn around, somebody is starting a podcast, somebody is wanting to get into podcasting, and that's one of the reasons that I have kind of set aside a certain amount of my time and we've budgeted a certain amount of money at Alta Speed Technologies to kind of help some people get started and get moving into this area because we think it's an important it's an important aspect to give people a platform, to give people a way to say what it is they want to say. And really a couple of years ago, it was very difficult and very expensive to get up and running and produce a very high-quality podcast. The truth of the matter is, today, you can do it for just a couple hundred bucks. So, uh, what is it? Do you mind? Do you want to tell me what the name of your podcast is and when it's going to be launching? Uh, it will be launching in April, so, and I will tell you the name of the podcast after I um, register the domain. So... But yeah, I can call you back when I have everything set up and tell you about how I done it with Linux and stuff like that. I would love to hear that. Thank you very much for being a part of our interactive mumble room. We really appreciate that. Again, you too can add your voice to the conversation at one eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Open source projects are seeking to take on the ARM powered Windows laptop. Now, this is an article from Tech Republic. You might remember that the Qualcomm-powered laptops from HP, Asus, and Lenovo uh, were originally designed to create a high-performing Windows experience on an ARM-based system. Microsoft and Qualcomm essentially started a partnership to produce Windows 10 specifically for the Snapdragon ARM processors. And the original idea was to create these very lightweight, very uh, powerful computers that had extremely long battery lives, had LTE built in. It was the take everywhere computer, 20 plus hour battery life, right? I mean, it was supposed to be crazy. And so some of the examples were the HP Envy X2 and the Asus NovaGo. Here's the problem. When they actually tried to roll this stuff out, it fell flat on its face. The performance was so poor inside of Windows 10 it, that the, it never took off. 
And the reason that it was so poor is because of the inline x86 emulator. This, the reality is that emulation, cross-platform emulation, is just not an efficient way to execute code. And so when you have a inline x86 emulator and you're running that on an ARM-based processor, you're going to experience a bad time. It's just not built for it. And then to add insult to injury, you can get away with you can get away with virtualizing cross-architecture if you're going from something very powerful like an x86 machine over to maybe emulating an ARM machine. That's why you can get away with some of the uh, some of the Android emulators and, and, and phone emulators and, and those kinds of things. But when you try to go the other way, you're taxing an ARM processor to begin with most of the time. But a group of programmers have decided to take on this challenge once again, and they are working to bring proper support to Ubuntu and to ARM-powered Windows laptops. Now, the reality is that the vast majority of Linux distros already exist and support ARM by default. But they do face an uphill battle, and that uphill battle is with these processors and with some of these chipsets, because the designing configuration of the Qualcomm Snapdragon processor make the default images not practically usable. And so the project is called ARCH64-Laptops. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can check it out at podcast.asknowashow.com. And developers are aiming to address those difficulties. They're going to work through all of them. Presently, the touchpad doesn't work on the ASUS, and they're lacking proper support for onboard storage, Wi-Fi, because all of those things rely on UFS support. Now, here's the good news. The bad news is that they have an uphill battle. They have their work cut out for them, okay? The good news is every time that we have seen Linux enter a space to try to compete on a level with basically anything else, when it can get industry support, we typically see it succeed, right? You watched Amazon destroy their Windows backend and and, and switch almost exclusively, if not exclusively, over to Linux. And there's a good friend of mine, and it's very difficult for me to get him on the show because of some of the security concerns and um, PR concerns of his employer. But he works for Amazon. He works very high, high level in the data center. And I've had numerous conversations with him about the policies that Amazon does and the way that they have implemented Linux. Turns out Amazon is very friendly to Linux and wants to push the ball forward, not only on the back end, but also on the front end on the desktop. And because what they've seen is when they put this into practice, when they put this into production, they have found it to be a very pleasurable experience. And they found that their employees have less problems, their tech support have less tickets, and they have better uptime. You watch this happen in a smaller scale when Asus released the EPC. If you remember that, it was one of the very first netbooks. And it shipped with Linux because, quite frankly, Windows was just too bloated to run on the thing. Now, you could kind of half sideload Windows onto it. But I think the thing had like, I can't remember, like 8 gigs or 16 gigs of storage. So it wasn't a great experience. And at that time, it was Windows XP. And even Windows XP occupied 2 to 4 gigs. Whereas the slimmed down version of Debian that they were running occupied almost no space at all. So as these developers continue to work on this, I think that they'll probably make more traction. In part because... The the very design philosophy between the two operating systems, if you look at the way that Windows was conceived and designed, Windows is conceived and designed as a desktop operating system, and now people are trying to essentially pare it down. They're trying to squish it and make it fit into a smaller platform or run on smaller boards. When you look at the design of 
Linux, by contrast, the design of Linux means that you are starting with a very small kernel that can essentially run on an embedded device, and then you layer usability features applications on top until you reach the peak performance without starting to drag the machine down. And that's why you see a lot of these machines that are running Linux and doing it very, very well. So uh, it'll be a project that we'll continue to watch. Again, we'll have links for you in the show notes so you can check it out yourself. But I suggest that you do, and I suggest that you watch this, and if and when this becomes a reality, I would like it. I would like to see ARM take off big time, because as we talked about last week, these ARM-powered laptops, like the Pinebook Pro, they really offer something, and they really offer some competition to Intel and x86, and I think we can gain a lot of traction as desktop Linux users if we embrace the fact that we have uh, a competitive advantage. KDE announced Plasma 5.15. Now, this is the first production release in 2019 that the Plasma team has embraced what KDE is calling the KDE Usability and Productivity Goal. And uh, it's essentially just one guy. But what he is doing is going through and keeping track of what he calls the paper cuts, the things that slow you down in KDE. And it was funny. Reading this, I felt like I was talking to another version of my sense of myself when i listen to this stuff and when i when i read through these problems and i go man i got bit by that man i had that problem man that 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 guy's speaking to me no feedback when you're searching okay that is that should be i would think a very simple development problem to solve but you know what in a desktop operating system in t things like 2019 that's a problem if i don't know if the search bar has or application bar has finished its search and did not yield any results, or if it's still searching and I should just hang on and be patient, right? That's That's been solved. Uh, thumbnails in ebook files, right? Huge, huge, huge pain when you have a gigantic folder like I do of ebook files. And I, you know, it's nice to be able to see the actual cover of the book and stuff like that. So now those are getting uh, thumbnails. Um, this is actually a feature from the last update and I would but we didn't get a chance to cover it so I threw it in the show notes for this week the network widget now has the ability to display a search field so if you're trying to find a specific SSID network you're able to search through them guess what I do on a day-to-day -day basis I go into businesses I sit down and say what network am I supposed to jump on they give me a name because oftentimes these buildings are shared with 15 people and then it's in a crowded metropolitan area that has 90 other businesses within you know 50 feet uh, there's like practically a metric ton of SSIDs to connect to. So the ability to filter through and get down to what I need, absolutely fantastic. And also the ability to right-click on the, the network widget to expose the configure action. Well, guess what else I do? Spend a vast majority of my time manually assigning IP addresses, manually assigning DNS servers, trying a configuration, then dumping back out of it and going back to DHCP to see if, if this works, right? So this is a huge, huge win for uh, KDE, and I'm so glad to see that they are working on the polish. This has been my frustration the past couple of weeks. We keep covering these projects that are do that are essentially reinventing the wheel. This guy or that guy has a new take on X. This guy or that guy or that woman is going to reinvent Y. What we really need on the Linux uh, on the desktop side of Linux is not more reinventation. We don't need any more competition. What we really need is people to buckle down and say, where are the pain points in these distributions? Where are the pain points in these desktop environments and how do we address them and fix them so that normal users aren't bothered by this?
And so this initiative does exactly that. And I'm really, really super thankful to the Plasma team for digging in and developing this. And I'll tell you something else, too, just as a side note. One of the largest criticisms I personally get when I complain about something, and usually it's in the process of doing a review or airing my opinion about something so that I can bring attention to it. And oftentimes I get a lot of backlash and people say, well, did you file a bug report? No, I didn't file a bug report. And it's not that I am this guy who has this vision that I'm too good or too big or too busy or too important to file a bug report. I just, I literally just don't have time. Uh, I, I just, I have other things that I need to do uh, to put food on the table. And so, and I'm not a developer. And so I don't know oftentimes that if there is an actual bug or if I just don't know how to do something. And I would bet you probably eight out of 10 times. It's just that I'm an idiot and I just didn't know how to do that thing. Um, and maybe the other two out of 10 times there is a bug, but it doesn't get reported. The thing that I like about this usability uh, bug system that they have, not only does it let you report a bug, it's very clean and easy. Like I went to the website within 30 seconds, found the button. It, they only ask for a couple of fields, not, you know, long output, not create this account and two factor that. And no, it just log in, click on report a bug type out what the problem is, click OK. And I was looking through some of the bugs that people had had entered yeah, in, into this, like the no, no feedback uh, when searching, right? That's one of the things that they're working on. I mean, the entire bug report is maybe two paragraphs long. So it's something that even I, as a, as a busy professional, could see myself doing. So I think, I, th I really think this is going to bring KDE troubleshooting, and I think it's going to bring the Plasma development a, a strong leap forward. So thank you very much uh, for the entire team who's making that possible. Eric Hendricks, Eric, the IT guy, he is in our Linux Newswire newsroom, and we go to him now for our weekly update. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire studio, this is the Weekly Roundup with Eric, the IT guy. Hey, Noah, happy to be with you again, and here are your Linux and open source headlines. February 5th was officially Safer Internet Day, and Google released some details surrounding the biggest security risks in the wild today. Over 3,000 Americans over the age of 16 participated in the study. Almost 70% of respondents claimed to follow reasonable security practices. However, answers to the survey showed a much more disturbing story, the most serious of which was that over 65% of users from all across the spectrum reused the same password for all their accounts. This clearly creates much higher risk for data breach. Safer Internet Day worked to spread the top four tips for safer internet usage. Number one, keep your software updated. Number two, use unique passwords with a password manager. Number three, implement two-factor authentication where possible. And number four, set up a recovery phone number or email address. There's good news for Linux users and Microsoft environments today. InSync, spelled with an I, an open source project that brought Google Drive syncing to the Linux desktop will soon support OneDrive. To date, the only solution for OneDrive has been the OneDriver project, which is only supported on the command line. The new release of InSync will support syncing across multiple systems, multiple OneDrive accounts, and syncing folders anywhere on one systems. No release date has been announced for the new functionality at this time. Purism has announced a partnership with GD Quest in an attempt to help teach users to create games. GD Quest is an indie game developer, and Purism is lending them the PureOS store and their upcoming device, the Librem 5. Their games will be written on top of Godot, a free and open source engine. Nathan Lovato, the founder of GD Quest, will soon be publishing tutorials for creating adaptive and high-quality Libre games. The Librem 5 is set to be released in April, with the hopes of having new and innovative games being ready by day one. 
For LinuxNewsWireStudio.com, I am Eric, the IT Guy. Thank you, Eric. Eric joins us at the bottom of every hour to give us a weekly roundup on local or on uh, on Linux news headlines. So if you want to uh, figure out what's going on in the Linux news world, no opinion, no commentary, just straight up news, you can get it here on the Ask Noah Show podcast.asknoahshow.com. We thank you for joining us. You too can add your voice to the conversation at one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. James joins us from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Noah? Yes, sir. Um, no, here's a quick, my question. I, I'd like to know how to add a hard drive mount, mount point to say photos, but I want to be able to add it so that um, all users, and I'm not 100% sure if I should do that account or do I have to go into the root account to properly add that? Yeah, you would do that as root. And the reason for that, James, is that... Um the, the the root user the is really what you want to be doing for uh, for fstab and and those kinds of things and that's what I would do I would create that mount uh, inside of fstab so that it automatically occurs every time the machine reboots that would be the way I would go about doing that um, and for that it would absolutely be appropriate to to use root now once uh, once you have the mount point uh, mounted then you might begin to use some permissions and set some permissions and use some sticky bits and those kinds of things to uh, get to a point where you can control what users are able to do what on the system. We have talked a lot about password managers and different password uh, managing devices and solutions. Uh, essentially, since the inception of the show, and I've tried each and every one of them, we've gone from everything from the venerable LastPass, which has since been bought out and turned into what I think is a crappy product, to the MultiPass, which is a hardware uh, password storage device. I am currently using a combination of Bitwarden, which is a self-hosted version of LastPass, but supports two-factor authentication, is completely open in nature, and allows you to self-host, hence how I'm self-hosting it. And uh, KeyPass, which is a local password manager that has an encrypted vault that you can use something like C-File, Dropbox, or some other, uh, you know, NextCloud to sync your password vault around. All of those are options, and all of them work. But there is one thing, there is one solution that we have not yet talked about, and that is LastPass. Now, LastPass is a stateless password manager, and so I thought I would go just to the horse's mouth, and as it were, and bring him on the show to talk about it. So Guillaume Vincent is his name. He's a senior software engineer at Red Hat, lead developer for LastPass, which, again, stateless password manager. And this hour, he comes on to talk to us about it. Hey, Guillaume, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Thank you for the invitation, Noah. Thanks for taking the time to be here. You are the lead developer for LastPass, a stateless password manager that has many of the same features of things like Bitwarden or LastPass without the cumbersome problem of having to sync the passwords around. So I guess, Guillaume, let's start with the basic question. For those that aren't familiar with it, what is LastPass? So LastPass is a, a password manager that doesn't save any data. So you use uh, um, a username, a website, and a master password. They are matched together with some math and cryptographic to create a, a secure password. And it always generates the same password as long as the three parameters don't change. This is basically what is LastPass. So instead of saving the information in a vault, 
and synchronizing these volts uh, around the internet. Let's pass only compute the three information you need to connect on your website, for example, locally, and it works offline. And when you close the last pass or you close the website, anything is gone. Nothing is saved on locally or on the server. There is nothing to, to store. This is what is LastPass. You said the password is composed off of three pieces of information, the username, the password, and the website that we are to visit. Now, those, I would assume, are just there for us to remember. It's easy for us to remember those three pieces of information, and so we can regenerate that password hash anytime, place. Do they actually have to be those values, or could you substitute anything in the username, anything in the password field, and anything in the website, as long as you remember what your actual username is on Facebook, for example? You have to remember the seat where you are going. So if you use the web extension, for example, when you open the web extension, you take the, the host name of the seat you are on. Uh, but you can use anything. Uh, if you are going to uh, uh, Amazon, you can use for the site Amazon. For the username, you can use whatever you want. You can use some emoji. You can use some uh, um, uh, special um, surname or, or the email you are going to use on the website. And for your master password, it could be a, a long passphrase. It could be passphrase with some uh, UTF-8 uh, UTF chars. The only thing you have to remember is the seat where you are going to go and to use the same login for, um, for simplicity. This is what I'm using. I'm using the same login every, every, everywhere. I'm using the same master password, of course, everywhere. And the only thing I, I'm changing when I'm using LesPass is the website I'm using. If you don't need Sync to use uh, LesPass, what is the purpose of the self-hosted option? The self-hosted option being, of course, the self-hosted database. Um, one problem we have with uh, the password management there is a lot of websites that they have stupid rules. When you are going to your bank account, they, they ask you a strong password composed with eight or six numbers. This is completely stupid. But there are a lot of websites that are asking some stupid rules. And because the password length and the computation that is used in LesPass produce a random password, you cannot choose, for example, to have eight numbers for your bank account. This is the main problem with LesPass, is that for certain sites, for some sites, we need a way to save the receipt, the receipt to generate the password. So not the generated password, but the receipt to rebuild the password. So for example, if I'm going to visit my bank account, I need to generate a password with eight numbers. And this is what we call the password profile. This is the receipt to rebuild the password. This is one problem I have with LesPass is that at a certain point, we need a way to save those kind of information. But the good news is, I hope that in the future, the best practices 
for example, letting people enter the password they want to connect to your website will be the, the standard. And so the more we are going in the internet world, less we, we will find those stupid rules. And so maybe not today, but maybe in two or three years, we will not need any less pass database to save those uh, password profile for those stupid sites. Because the password that we enter into the website that we're visiting is composed based on the username, the password, and the website that we enter into LessPass, that means that if any one of those three strings changes, the resulting password hash that we enter into the website would change. Is there no way to go about changing the master password without also changing all of the passwords on the individual websites? Is that, do I understand that correctly? You understand perfectly correctly. This is one of the main issue with the stateless password manager. Every stateless password manager, uh, if your master password leak, this is more critical than the, uh, the normal password manager with a synchronization. Because with a, a normal password manager like LastPass or Bitwarden, if somebody get your master password, he need to get access to your um, vault. He also need to hack your vault and your master password. With LastPass, you only have to hack your master password. So this this is something that we try to mitigate with some nice feature. For example, uh, on LastPass, when you enter your master password, there is uh, three icons, uh, emoticons near your master password. And the emoticons and the color colors of those emoticons reflect the the master password so when you when you type a master password you don't have to reveal your master password to know that you are using yet that you are entered the the good one another feature is on mobile for example on the last version when you are using android you you can set and save your master password with your fingerprint uh, and so you never have to, to write your master password on your mobile. So somebody that is looking a shoulder picker who try to get your uh, master password cannot get your master password because it's saved on your, on your mobile. Point blank, Guillaume, is LessPass secure? Do you trust it to manage your passwords, which you recommend that people trust it to manage theirs? Personally, I use only LessPass, but we, we need for, for all my users, I always say, if you need some security, the best security you, you, you will have will be, in my point of view, in KeePass or Bitwarden. So if you want the best security possible, you have to use a master password, um, a password manager saved in somewhere but you will encounter some problem with the synchronization. The synchronization problem will be something that you will encounter. But LessPass is better than the same password everywhere. This is what LessPass is trying to solve. The problem that LessPass is trying to solve is to have a different password on every website. The problem with these traditional password managers are that they basically force you to use a service and those services continually change. We watched what happened with LastPass and so users become disenfranchised and say this is a pain. This is... Uh, this is a this is a huge mess and we know what users tend to do if there's a choice between security and convenience they're going to choose convenience and so what what you guys have done is designed a password manager that works for convenience rather than working only towards security security is a is a really difficult uh, field 
I, I prefer to use something that uh, I encourage my um, users to understand what they are using. So if they can understand what are the potential attacks they can have, they, they just need to understand what are the problem with the password manager and they can after be more um, secure when they are entering the master password, for example, because they know that this is the only thing that they have to secure properly. So they don't have to write somewhere, they just have to save the password manager, the master password in their head. Guillaume, you are the lead developer for LastPass. This is your baby. How did this come to be? How did LastPass come into existence? Tell me that story. There is a guy, Martin Billman, who wrote an application called Master Password App. This is, I think, the, the, the first one. The, the first stateless password manager. So when I th see the password manager, I say, oh, th this is what I'm looking for. Uh, I'm fed up to, to synchronize on Google Drive my KeePass uh, uh, store. Uh, and so I need something more simple. Okay, I know that there is some, some issue with this, but I need th something like that. And so I tried to use Master Password app. I found Master Password app user experience not so good. Uh, and I, at the, in 2016, I tried to, to found a pet project to improve my, my skill in my field, uh, in my job. And, and so I start working on this path. And Someday, uh, somebody, one member of the community post the LastPass link on Hacker News and we, we get, uh, I think we were on the top 10 of Hacker News during 10 hours and this is how LastPass started. That's an exciting story. I love, I've always said that some, some of the best software comes out of a developer scratching an itch, right? And that's why I take it so seriously when I find developers that quote unquote eat their own dog food, you know, you say that that's exclusively what you're using. I know as a user, then if I ever come across a problem or I struggle with something, you, the developer are also struggling with that. Right. And so it's to me, that's, that's says a lot about the product that you're, that you're developing. Frankly, you said that LesPass helps prevent shoulder watchers by utilizing a picture system. Being the only developer, I know that you're going to know the answer to this question. And the question is, could you elaborate on the technical side of that? Our audience is a fairly technical audience, and so they like to know the ins and outs and the quick and dirty of it. Dig into that a little bit. Elaborate a little bit. How exactly does that process work? So when you enter your master password, you, we, we just hash 2065 hash of your master password. This generate a hexadecimal um, number, and we take those hexadecimal number to get um, uh, to get um, uh, three number, and we use the three number in a, in a pool of um, icons, and we take three icons with this number, and so because the hash is always the same we get always the same icon and we use um, from this hexadecimal number, we, we use uh, um, also three numbers to get the color. So we get three cons, three colors, and we, we compute uh, your master password and to generate three cons with uh, three colors. Very cool and a nice feature and something that I'm not seeing on any other password manager. So that's 
That's very cool. Is it primarily designed to be used as a native app or is it primarily designed to be used as a browser extension? Firstly, it was designed to be used as a browser extension. But because there is more and more usage on mobile, uh, we started to take the mobile extension and we put it in a Cordoba web app and we put it on Android. But there is an interesting problem here is that because we compute the master password locally, uh, we need to do that in JavaScript. If we want to have enough security, we need to, to do some computation that are hard to, to mitigate the brute force, for example. But on JavaScript, it's really difficult to do some cryptography. So the first version of LESPAS was using uh, not so much 8,000 computation in PBKDF2 uh, algorithm. And it wasn't enough to mitigate the brute force. So we increased this to 100,000. And we encountered a problem that was on JavaScript site, on, on some browser, the computation was really slow. And on mobile, on Android, um, Chrome on mobile, it was really slow. So we decided to write an Android app, a native application after but the project started with the, the web extension. We moved the web extension in the um, a, um, a wrapper, a Cordoba web application. And after it wasn't enough for the security purposes, so we, we built an Android application. What are the plans moving forward for LESPASS? Any plans to incorporate something like maybe two-factor authentication, utilizing something like the YubiKey? Is any of that something that you've looked at or considered? We have looked at the, the, a way to, to use some YubiKey um, for two reasons. The main one was to protect the password profile saved on the LESPASS database. And uh, so to be able to use two-factor authentication to connect to your database. And the other was to protect your, uh, your master password uh, with the YubiKey. So maybe using a, a special um, string in your YubiKey. This is in my vision of the product. In five years, for example, I don't want to have LESPASS database anymore. I, I, I want to have a pure stateless password manager. And, and so those feature, every feature that increase oh, the security of the LESPASS database is something that is not going in the right direction for me. So I'm more working on uh, uh, an iOS application right now at the moment and, um, and improving the user experience. And the last thing I'm working on is using Web, Web Crypto API to build and maybe to change the algorithm of LESPASS in a version 3, maybe using Argon, Argon 2 or uh, something more robust uh, than PBKDF2. It's a small project. I'm, I'm the only one developer. This is something that maybe can introduce some fear, but uh, this is a small project. The only thing I can, I can say is that maybe people should look at some open source password manager, LESPASS or Bitwarden or Keepass or, but the people should understand what they are using how it builds and and start looking at and helping people to to protect the the password 
Guillaume Vincent is his name, a software engineer at Red Hat and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Guillaume, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Thank you, Noah. You'll notice a couple of things as, uh, as, as I was talking to him. It is not a replacement for Bitwarden. LastPass is not a replacement for KeePass. He acknowledges that there are some security concerns. And he says himself, hey, listen, I'm not a security analyst. I'm a guy that struggles with a problem. And that problem is that password managers are too complicated. And it occupies too much time. And there's too much setup. And there's too much overhead. I just need the stupid thing to work. Do you know what LessPass is better than? It's better than a, using a single password for every single site. Because I'm watching this occur inside of inside of our various chat mechanisms, and I'm kind of watching as 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 I was chatting with Guillaume what people are saying about LessPass. This solves a problem because it's better than no password manager at all. And if we can get to a point where we add two factor, I think the security goes up significantly. Right. So I think this is an exciting project. I think Guillaume is doing a fantastic job. I recommend that you check out LastPass. If you're not using a password manager, then you absolutely need to check out LastPass. And if you are already using an open source password manager like Bitwarden or KeePass, then keep doing that because that is going to provide you with uh, with uh, a more secure system. Again, one 855 450 noah That's 855-450-6624, the email, live at com. You can also join in our interactive mumble room, which is what Michael Tunnell, owner of Tux Digital, host of This Week in Linux, and my co-host on Destination Linux. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. So this is kind of an impromptu interview. We weren't really scheduled or planned to be on the show, but what happened in the chat room is... A discussion took off about the other show that I, one of the other shows that I do, which is Destination Linux. And if you're not familiar with what Destination Linux is, it is, I think, the only weekly video Linux-specific discussion podcast out there. Am I wrong in saying that? No, I think that's pretty that's pretty accurate. It's a, the focus of being the video and of being a podcast. So, and the thing that is great about Destination Linux, and I think it's the things that people really like about any show in general, is personality and, and, and character, right? Like, we don't just, I mean, we don't just grind the gears the whole time. We get, we do get to some semi-serious stuff, but everybody has a different take because you have, everybody is, a, is an expert in, in their own sphere in their own world right so michael he follows the community news and he is involved with the community and the mailing lists and every little feature that comes out on every little project he tracks it like a hawk and brings that to the table then you have ryan who is a gaming expert and a hardware expert and there isn't a, he knows more about gaming hardware systems than the people at nvidia and whatever that other red company that he likes who makes them right i mean he knows more about it and then you have zeb who is a software developer and works on a bunch of distros and has a really keen insight into what the into what the user experience should be like and what the user expects out of a system. And then you have me who comes at it from a system administrator background and uh, and, and, a, and, a, and and selling Linux to people and supporting Linux at, at large scale to people. And so you put the four of us together in a room and I'm not kidding. I, be, I mean, we'll start and what do we go, Michael? Three, four, I think this week we went four hours. Yeah, I think that at the end of the, the stream it was like four and a half hours, yeah. So it's an absolutely fantastic experience. And if you... You know, the you can download the show. You can go to destinationlinux.org. Of course, we're in all of your favorite podcast readers and catchers. And, and so if you have a particular app, you just search Destination Linux. You can find, you can subscribe there. The 
but that's really not the best way to watch the show. It's really not the best way to participate in the show, is it, Michael? Oh, definitely not. Because you should you should be you could become a patron of Destination Linux and join the Zoom room where you can do uh, you could be a part of the actual show as we record it, so you can interact with us during the show. And after the end of the show, we do a post show where all the patrons are allowed to are op- able to open their mics and their cameras and join us and have a anywhere between thirty minutes to sometimes two hours. Uh, discussion just you know just to talk about whatever you want we have a linux party basically every week on sundays basically it's it's also kind of like a lug in a way so we get started usually we get started around uh it's about uh, 11 a.m central time and is that is that right but this week we're actually gonna be doing it on friday because of uh, because somebody cares about their kid more than they care about (laughs) linux i won't say any names ryan but uh so we're going to be doing that at friday i think it's going to be at 3 p.m central uh yeah something like that yeah Pretty sure. So we'll have some links for you in the show notes, but I invite you to check it out. And, you know, if ever there was a week to listen, this week would be the week because we had a fantastic interview. We had Eric Eichmeyer from the um, the Ubuntu Studio Project, and he literally took a project that was on the brink of death and said, there is a place for this. If you like that gentleman that we were just talking to, Pycrash, and he wants to start a he wants to start a podcast, Ubuntu Studio is very close to being at a point where I could just tell him, hey, listen, just install this distro and you'll have all the tools that you need. It actually is, from what we were talking about, is basically there. It doesn't have some of the teleconferencing software installed, but the rest of it, all of the production stuff is already there. And he is working on some fantastic tweaks and improvements to make Jack as simple as opening up a control panel. Yeah, and he's also announced on the show uh, a new cool feature that they're going to be doing with some other flavors not going to spoil it so you can definitely watch it and that episode of destination linux comes out tomorrow stochak but you wouldn't have to wait if you were a patreon now stochak's true stochak's in the chat room says uh have you looked into any patreon alternatives we did actually look into patreon alternatives there's a we all we have patreon for people who want to use it and for people who don't want to use it we have a coffee which is ko-fi.com so if you go to destinationlinux.org slash patreon or slash coffee k-o-f-i then you can use it that way, and you'll still get the same benefits, whichever one you use. I'd recommend looking into Subscribe Star because Coffee still uses PayPal and Stripe. Oh, really? I was not. I I don't think we were aware of that. But they don't have they don't have some of the deplatforming uh, problems that uh, that that Patreon has had, right? Right, they don't. So they anyway, will because PayPal and Stripe are still on their backbone, where Subscribe Star have moved away from Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and Stripe uh, and are using bank systems that don't support deplatforming. And just this week in the news, one person was actually removed from their personal bank account for having a different political view. So even now, if you're not a business, your personal bank account can get removed as well. Interesting. Well, thank you very much for the information, uh, Charlie. I really appreciate that. Uh, we'll continue to watch that. And that's one of the things that I really enjoy about working with Michael. He's a, he's a true professional because we'll record a four-hour show. And then there's poor Michael. He'll sit there 
for five, six, seven hours editing it to make everything absolutely perfectly. And then once the show actually comes out, then he spends the next two or three hours researching alternatives to Patreon, researching alternatives to hosting, researching alternatives to Fireside and, and all of those sorts of things. So it, it is, it is a, if you haven't checked out the podcast before and if you wanted a taste of it, you've actually heard these guys on the Ask Noah show. We did our, uh, what I forget exactly what we called it, but we had we brought the whole Destination Linux team onto the show and then we collected- Stump the brain- Stump the, stump the Linux chumps. chumps. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we'll have a link to that episode as well. So you can kind of get a teaser in a format that you're already familiar with in the podcast that you're already subscribed to. And you can kind of check it out. But if that is your if that's your cup of tea, uh, you should absolutely check out Destination Linux because the the... I really truly believe it's one of the best Linux shows out there. And I also think that science tells us 85% of communication is nonverbal, which means that as much as I love doing my audio only show, the reality is a lot of my enthusiasm, passion can be lost in this microphone. And Destination Linux removes that barrier because it is a video focused show. We release it as an audio show, but we're, you know, we've got the cameras on, we're paying attention, and there's all sorts of fun banter that goes along with that. So make sure to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. We, we released it as an audio for our RSS feed if you want to use it as like a, a podcast catcher. But we also have videos on YouTube so you can watch the whole thing in video form on YouTube as well as you can join us live if you become a patron. Thanks a lot, Michael, for joining us. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll get you back on the program. I think your schedule for the next week or so to to share an exciting new workflow that you've developed. You've custom wrote in-house to produce podcasts automatically you've scripted the entire process of producing a podcast yes and it took a long time to get it to get it to work but it finally does work that's fantastic so you stay tuned you're going to hear michael tonelli he'll be back on the show good friend of mine good friend of the show the site by the way asknoshow.com designed by visuex michael's company the chat that you see on the screen all of the animated graphics all of that stuff except for my little uh, avatar all of that stuff designed at no cost to us uh, by Visuex and Michael Tunnell because he does he really likes to give back to the community. So make sure to check out Destination Linux. Also make sure to check out TuxDigital.com. That's where Michael Tunnell does a weekly, um, essentially a weekly news show where he doesn't give any commentary. He just gives you the news. It's called This Week in Linux. Check it out, TuxDigital.com. Uh, and uh, we'll have links to everybody's channel, Das Geek, uh, Zebedee Boss, myself, uh, all in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Now, this week, I had a chance to play with a new system, and it is the 3CX phone hosting system. Now, we talked about 3CX a while back with our friend uh, Michael from Voxtelesis, the company who actually provides provided our phone system right here for the Ask Noah show. And he, when I sat down, and he is a Linux and open source guy through and through, and I asked him point blank, I said, what would you recommend for uh IP phone systems. And he said, there really just is no competition to 3CX. It's not open source, but it's self-hosted, runs on Linux. You have to give it a shot. And boy, let me tell you guys, I've been using it since that time. Blown out of the water. It puts free PBX on its knees. When you install the software, first of all, they custom map a DMS entry for you. So all of the pain of actually getting a server up and running and generating an SSL certificate and all that stuff, all of that is handled in a wizard and done automatically. So you don't have to deal with any of that. 
Then once you get into the interface, the interface is like nothing I've ever seen. It is smooth, it is slick, it is intuitive. All of the features that you'd want, it comes with the same set of defaults. So by default, you're automatically going to get a, a virtual receptionist and you're already going to have extensions that make sense. It handles something that FreePBX didn't handle, which is you can have multiple phones paired to the same extension, which means I can have one extension at home, I can have the same extension at my office, I can have the same extension uh, here in the studio, and when somebody calls my extension, it rings all of them at once. And the best part is the mobile integration. You have the ability to open up the 3CX mobile app and simply scan a QR code that will pair your phone to your extension. All of your calls will automatically ring on your cell phone. You can sign in or out of the app so you can decide if and when you want to take work calls. They have a free version that you can download that will allow you to do up to four simultaneous calls. After that, there is a small uh, yearly fee that you have to pay to to use the uh, the 16 calls and and 32 call, simultaneous calls. But I absolutely I have I have switched over whole hog to 3CX. I have become a believer. Uh, everybody can make fun of me for. Uh, for turning my back on open source, as it were. The reality is, it's that good of a piece of software. And at the end of the day, I'm a Linux guy. And it runs on Linux. It's self-hosted. So I can't go ahead and audit the code. But you know what? It's just a phone system. And the other end of it is terminating on a plain old full system anyway. So the chances of that being secure were slim to none to begin with. Hey, did you know the show is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right. To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit show. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all the articles and materials referenced in this episode. You can get the latest course by following us on Twitter, at AskNoahShow. And me personally, at Linux. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems. Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over. There's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com.